Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I wanted to let you know how you can interact with the podcast via social media. A Mic on the Podium has a dedicated Facebook page and Twitter feed where you can send in your thoughts and comments and they will be answered personally by me. Just search for A Mic on the Podium on Facebook or at A Mic on the Podium, all one word with no spaces, on Twitter. You can also leave your thoughts as a review on Apple Podcasts. Every review and rating helps the show reach a bigger audience and will be much appreciated by me. You can also support the podcast financially by going to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and subscribing to a whole new set of podcasts. Today, I conduct a conversation with a British conductor who, like Martin Brabins, studied with Ilya Musin, won the Leeds Conducting Competition and went on to become music director at English National Opera. Alongside her successful career on the podium, since 2013, she has been Head of Conducting at the Royal Academy of Music. It's a great pleasure to welcome Sean Edwards. Sean, how lovely to talk to you today. I hope you're well. Yes, actually, I'm fine. Good. And how's lockdown treating you? Are you... I know you, you will have teaching commitments at the Royal Academy, but... Do are you busy learning scores, or, or are you like me? I'm sort of bereft. I'm not doing any score learning at all. Well, I must say that um, I was supposed to be conducting a production of Aida for the Royal Swedish Opera, and I needed to do a lot of work on that. And as soon as lockdown came, it was very difficult to actually keep that momentum going. Um, so since then, I must admit that, like you, perhaps I'm finding doing other things like more academic sort of thinking about scores and music generally which has actually been very much sparked by my students um has been a more helpful and constructive way of doing things mm. i mean yeah i've i've stopped doing learning scores because i don't know whether the concerts i've got to learn them for are going to go ahead so you know i uh, i've thrown all of my energies into doing this and the major reason being at what point in history have all of the conductors had an hour free for me to chat to them. Um, exactly. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, everybody's treating it differently, which, you know, I suppose that's the moral of the podcast really is everybody is different. And, and therefore, if I go right back to the beginning, when did music first come into your life? Um, because for everybody, it's a different point. I was very lucky as a kid. My parents had a family heirloom of a quite a nice piano. And I remember when I was about six asking my mother for lessons and mm. I did then did have lessons. I was at a very tiny primary school in Sussex um, with, you know, rather desultory music lessons once a week, class lessons. I think we had a broken tambourine and a couple of triangles <laughs> and we were singing these old community songbook kind of songs, which mean absolutely nothing I think to young children but um, yeah I was really attracted to learn the piano um, even though my teacher was fairly fierce. I, why is it that teachers make learning classical music such mm. a difficult thing but anyway um, I was also very struck by some recordings that I heard as a again a very young child um, school plays and in the interval the headmistress thought it was cool to get her bush portable record player out and put things like Forjak 9 on it mm. but that for me just had a tremendous meaning and odd things you heard in the radio that you know really just went home but you could of course never had the wherewithal to find out what the music actually was um, so all those kind of things added up to going to secondary school. And for some reason, which I, I've never quite got to the bottom of, I very much wanted to learn the French horn. So luckily, my father got a new job. Um, we moved to the Oxfordshire area and I went to a very musical school in contrast to my primary school in the middle of Oxford. And I did have the opportunity to learn the horn. I had wonderful piano lessons and then absolutely sort of revelatory moment for me was when I was about 13 and I was at the Oxfordshire School's youth music service um, and fantastic opportunity to play in the symphony orchestra there, Sibelius Second Symphony on mm. fourth horn and it was just, it, it blew my mind and ever since then I've been completely sold on music and performing it, listening to it, being a part of it really. Well, I mean, isn't it amazing that 
the amount of people I've spoken to who've said that the first time, you know, they played in an orchestra was a revelation. I've conducted quite a lot of youth orchestras, including the Birmingham Schools Orchestra, uh, which you know is an age limit of 18. And so you often see them when they're 15 and 16 for the first time. And their minds are literally blown. The looks on their faces when they start playing this music. Yeah, it's amazing. It's something that, you know, we fight and fight to get across to the powers that be that music is important and should be available to everybody. But yeah, you, yeah. If, you, if you could stand next to me or you in front of these orchestras and see these kids' faces the first time they play this stuff, it's mind-blowing to them. I was the same. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's sort of transformative. You made me laugh um, inside. I didn't laugh out loud. When you talked about fierce teachers, um, my first <laughs> violin teacher uh, was a lovely man. Uh, Harry Horseman, for anybody who's from the northeast of England, uh, he was the spitting image of Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, he was a lovely man. He barely got out of his chair to teach you, but when he lost his temper, he would almost bounce from foot to foot. He was the scariest person on earth when you got anything wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. It, it, it makes you wonder how you ever progress. So, in Oxfordshire, where in youth orchestra, and obviously you're, this is your first encounter with a conductor. Did it make any impact on you at this stage, the person who was conducting Oxfordshire School's music service? Well, interestingly, um, it was Muir Matheson conducting. Oh, um, had been yeah. absolutely a wonderful, uh, particularly film music conductor in the post-war amazing period of filmmaking in oh. Britain. Um, and by now he was a very old man and he was retired and he used to drive in his Blue Triumph Herald from High Wycombe every Saturday to come and... and uh, direct these orchestras and I suppose you know he was just one of these amazing eminence grease people with a, a, an incredible voice I remember really sort of gritty Scottish voice that, that just had a wonderful authority and um, sharing this music I I don't really remember much about what he was actually doing other than um, that he was a very he was powerful but he was also a very kind man and um, yeah I was I was devastated when he died actually um, I guess it was only the following year, um, quite suddenly. And what did, though, get, make me very aware was that the next person who took over was sadly one of those bureaucrats who think it would be great if they did some conducting. And <laughs> they were a disaster. And mm. it immediately shows how important that person on the podium actually is in terms of imparting the sort of love and openness to the music um, and a, a good sense of how to actually deliver it. I, I did chuckle out loud though because we've all encountered one of those at various stages of your youth music. Somebody who, who maybe runs the music service, um, but is no conductor. Um, and and I have a bee in my bonnet about those sort of people because they're more often than not the people who say, "Follow my stick, follow my stick, follow the beat," and there's nothing there to follow. And you're not taught the right way, which is to listen to each other and to react and listen to everybody else in the room. Yeah, And I've been quite hot on that with, for instance, the CBSO Youth Orchestra. The amount of times I tell them, don't follow me, listen to each other. You know, um, it's not about following the stick. Um, so the French horn gets you um, into the Royal Northern College of Music. Um, is that right. correct? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, um, and at this stage, are you thinking, right, I want to be, uh, were you a, a high horn or a low horn? Uh, do you know, I don't really know. I mean, the thing is, uh, I... I was very promising, I think, as, as a young horn player. And then the absolutely classic thing, because I could play quietly, which mm. is actually very expensive for horn players to do mm -hmm. on the lips and control. I was a popular choice and used to play a lot around Oxford University and things. When I was at school, it's still at school. But of course, I did too much too soon. And I was learning with Iber James for the last two years of being at school. I used to go to London every fortnight to have lessons with him on a scholarship, actually, from Oxfordshire County Youth and got to the Royal Northern, which was completely out of the blue because he'd suddenly given up the Royal Academy. Mm. Um, he was in the Philip Jones Brass Ensemble and I think the touring was huge and he just couldn't keep up with um, the requirements there and was you know, interested in being involved with Besters of the Barn Band in the North um, where he was originally from. So um, he said he was only going to teach at the Royal Northern and so I applied there and I don't think I'd ever been further north than Birmingham before. Um, but there I was, I ended up at the Royal Northern studying with him um, for two years. In fact, he then went on to teach in Freiburg and I continued with a marvellous man, James Eastham, who was also a very tough taskmaster, actually. But um, 
all the time I was also conducting because I started my own group in Oxford um, in the last couple of years I was at school and uh, it was a period when you know at the end of the school day um, the local school was just sitting there empty and we were able to use classrooms to do our rehearsals in and things and nobody seemed to mind or stop us um, and putting on concerts in local churches and my mum cooking tea for everybody and we we just had a lovely time actually and I was doing it and some other friends were doing it so I you know they'd play in my orchestra I'd play in theirs and we just put on music we wanted to do music um, mm. and then when I was at Manchester I'd done too much too soon on the horn and had to go back to basically open strings or on the horn the equivalent um, long notes and while that was happening, and actually I had wonderful teaching from Ivor at that point, um, of course, you know, the desire to do music was still there. So I put together a small wind ensemble and then it would expand into slightly larger things when we did concerts with more strings and so on. Um, and I was tremendously encouraged by Timothy Rainish, who was then um, mm. head of wind brass percussion, to do that. Um, he himself had been a horn player who then moved into conducting. So I guess he saw parallels there and and was tim giving you lessons uh, or or maybe a better question would be at what point did you decide right uh, i'm going to throw my weight right behind conducting and, and maybe have some lessons whilst i'm at the rncm absolutely so tim very much helped me in those early years you know and, and did actually you know join me into some of the sessions he was having with his own postgraduate proper conducting students. And I then did win the scholarship as it was then um, to do the two year postgraduate, whatever it was, I think it was a diploma or something then. Um, at which point I took lessons with Charles Groves and perhaps more decisively for me just at that moment, uh, also joined Norman Del Mar's class at the Royal College in London because I was the only conducting student in Manchester official one mm. um, and I remember saying to Tim you know I just need to know what other young conductors are doing and um, you know get on with them too so the college in Manchester were brilliant at organizing this for me so I used to go and um, every other Saturday get the terribly early train from Manchester and then go to Norman Del Mar's house on a Saturday morning where he would have his large class of conducting students and we would all sit at his feet and he would give us marvellous, marvellous lessons and classes. Yeah, Simon Halsey talked very fondly about going to his house um, and the, the the sort of, the the every conductor's ideal library or study full of scores and instruments and, and a piano. Absolutely. And yeah, as you say, yeah. sitting at the feet of this fountain yeah. of knowledge. Um, yeah. Yeah, this room with two concert grands facing each other. Mm. And then, as you say, the wall lined with scores and books. And, and Norman... Uh, he'd get us to play the piano for each other. Um, you know, we'd have two people on each piano trying to play from the scores. And of course, that wasn't brilliant. But, you know, we did have some some very nice classes together. Yeah, I had a similar experience in Birmingham with his son, Jonathan, who taught at the Conservatory of Birmingham. And yeah, we would sit at the piano. And as I've said before, as a violinist, I never got flutes or violins. I only ever got, you know, transposing instruments. Um, and it, <laughs> ma it, ma it makes you learn, doesn't it? It makes you learn. Certainly does, yeah. What would you say the biggest differences between Sir Charles Grove's teaching and Norman Del Mar's were? Um, I mean, was one more stick-based or technique? Uh, or the, I mean, I know from previous accounts that Norman was very much about the score uh, and learning yes, the score. Yes, absolutely. Mm. No, I think you could say that Charles was more um, about the, just the practicalities of conducting. But um, he also actually very early on said that he didn't really teach conducting. Mm. Although he was a wonderful supporter, actually, of everything going on in Manchester, not just the college. You know, he worked frequently with the Halle Orchestra. He was also frequently involved with the Manchester Camerata um, and, you know, really was uh, a sort of powerful figure in northern music making. Um, but he did help me very much in the ideas of, you know, how to form programmes and... Uh, more practical side of um, rehearsals and so on. 
But his real help actually came um, after I'd been to Russia um, mm. and won the Leeds conducting competition. Um, when he then invited me to tea or to coffee one morning at his house um, in uh, Camden Square in London. Um, and uh, he and his wife, Hilary, who I was also immensely fond of, they, they always served incredibly strong tea, which sort of pinned your teeth back. Um, but I remember him saying, well, have you got an agent? And I said, no, you know, I hadn't thought about it. So um, he rang up his agent, who was Howard Hartog at Ingpen and Williams, um, who at that time was seen as the sort of doyen of perhaps London concert agents. Um, and there was this wonderful con conversation. Howard, I've got Sean Edwards here. When can you see her? And there was a kind of uh, the other end. Right, 11 o'clock Tuesday morning. Um, how's that for you, Howard? And he was forced to say, okay. And then, Sean, you can do that, can't you? Yes. Um, so I went and had this interview with um, Howard Hartog, who decided he'd take me on for a year. Um, this was actually then during the time I was still a student in, in uh, St. Petersburg. Um, mm. But... Uh, that was Charles's biggest gift, in a way, was introducing me to Howard, recommending me to Howard, who then did take me on, actually. That's wonderful, isn't it? Um, I'm going to focus on something, uh, obviously, which is a big part of your life, which you've mentioned a couple of times there, which is going to Russia to study. Um, I did read an interview, actually, um, online this morning, uh, over my coffee, uh, that you did many, many, many years ago. And, um, and we have something in common in the fact that we've both worked for a, a major US burger chain. Should we call it, should we call it that? <laughs> <laughs> you said that you, you worked there between, uh, between studying or before going to Russia. Um, That's right. Uh, yeah, and I did it before I went to music college. So, um, but it was that point when you, you, know, you decided to apply for the British Council grant and, and to go and hopefully to go and study with the great Ilya Moosin. So how did that come about and what was it like learning from this um, well, he's a sort of mountainous figure of the 20th century to conduct us. So I, just reeling back a little bit, just mm. before I took up my scholarship at the Royal Northern to do the conducting programme there, I got onto a course which is now the Kondrashen competition, actually, in Holland. But mm. at that time uh, was the Netherlands Radio Orchestra conducting course, I think, or something like this. Um, and very sadly, Kondrashin had died that spring, but Neymar Yervi, who had just exited the Soviet Union and was now living in Europe with his family, um, was asked to come and do this month-long course. And because he was somewhat free, I think he was you know, happy to take it on. Mm. And I was there at age 21 with Andrew Litton. Um, <laughs> we were the sort of babies on this course. Andrew was furious that he was slightly older than me, but we were you know, we regarded these other conductors who were in their thirties as being, you know, this sort of almost extinct version of mammals. Um, and we, um, yeah, I've, I've struggled immensely. I, I think I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, but I was one of the people that Yervi yeah, took on this course. And when he then did some conducting, I just thought, I want to be able to conduct like this, mm. this beautiful, lyrical, musical, and tremendously fluent, easy communication with the players was something that I immediately admired. It was as if someone had put the light on in the room when he stood on the podium. And I remember asking him, you know, how can I conduct like you, that, that sort of gauche 21-year-old you know, thing? And he said, well, of course, you have to study at, in Leningrad. Um, although his teacher, uh, Rabinovich, was already dead, sadly, but he said, you know, Musin is now the head of department and the mm. Leningrad school continues. I then went to Manchester, did my studies, but already um, in the middle of the second year, I realized that what I, I, as many conductors do, you know, you learn how to put on concerts, fix the orchestra, hire the music, do everything you need to do to get the show on. Um, and then you stand on the podium and you realize you don't know what you're doing. What do I do now? What <laughs> is the relationship between my gestures and the sound? So I very much wanted to continue my studies in that way and apply to the British Council. And unfortunately, at that period, this is 1983 now, Britain was in one of the lowest ebbs in terms of the relationship with the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, so they couldn't tell me whether they could send me or not. They said, we like you. We think you're good material to go. And I was the first person to apply to study conducting in the Soviet Union as opposed to piano or violin. 
Um, so uh, this is why the working at the burger chain came in because <laughs> yeah, I'd yeah. finished my, I finished my studies, uh, passed my exams at uh, the Royal Northern. Um, but then there was this massive hole and I was trying to learn Russian and get ready to go, but they couldn't tell me whether I was going. And it was actually the very literally last moment. Um, awfully, the Soviets shot down a Korean passenger jet, killing everyone, of course. Mm. They said it was flying over their airspace. And at that time, the state-owned British Airways, the government then decided, would close all flights to the Soviet Union. And suddenly there was a massive scramble and the British Council got me onto the last flight out, basically. Um, and they didn't know where I was going to be sent, where I'd be allocated at that time. So I arrived in Moscow. I remember realizing I didn't even know how to say hello to anybody in Russian. And um, yeah, the, amazingly then I was sent to St. Petersburg and initially actually handed to Arvid Janssens to study, um, mm -hmm. the father of Morris, um, because he spoke very good English actually. Um, but I realized after a couple of weeks, we were encouraged to go to all the other teachers' classes that it was actually Musin I needed to study with. And eventually, um, Ilya Musin did agree much against his wife's better um, judgment because he already had too many students and he was already 80 and not terribly well. Mm. Um, but he took me on and, you know, that this was just wonderful. And so, yeah, that was the start of this amazing two-year period for me. Oh, what an amazing story um, to suddenly be, you know, right, you're on the next flight, pack your bags and get going. Um, yeah. And, the, and, and you were there two years in the mid 80s when Soviet Russia was still very much, um, uh, well, it, it wasn't anywhere near looking like breaking down. Um, you're so right. Yeah. I'm looking back, you know, there wasn't a single crack, actually. I mean, the only thing was, you know, so... Brezhnev had died and Andropov had been appointed as the new president. Um, and then he died rather suddenly. And mm. they had this very brief spell with another guy, Chernyenko. And I remember, I remember this only because I was listening to rehearsals of the uh, St. Petersburg Philharmonic. And suddenly all the boats on the River Neva would start at 11 o'clock in the morning uh, honking. And, you know, there'd be this sort of funereal um, atmosphere. And then he also, of course, later had to play... Um, Oh, I think it was the slow boom to Beethoven 7 mm. um, is their standard funereal response to these uh, bad news moments. Um, and then, of course, my last three months there, Gorbachev started. And this is where, you know, things started to liven up. Really. Mm. So, Musin, um, Martin Brabin spoke fondly about uh, Ilya Musin and uh, because uh, on, on the suggestion from you, he said that he went and studied there later on. Um, what was the man like? Um, and I'm assuming that much of what he taught you, you now use in your teachings at the Royal Academy and, and further afield. Would I be right in that? I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. Um, so what was he like? No, absolutely. Mm. What was he like? So uh, the man himself, Ilya Musin, um, very humble, very extremely erudite, knowledgeable. Everything he taught was from memory partly because his eyesight was going by then, but also just, you know, this deep knowledge of the scores and the music. Um, mm. He didn't talk very much about uh, the structure of works, but he showed everything and had this remarkable sort of innate uh, connection perhaps with sound, which was perhaps the thing that most helped me to develop my own conducting. This sense, I think, that Russians have much more than perhaps we do in the West, that sound is something absolutely uh, plastic and maneuverable and malleable and that you can touch and work on as if it's um, something moldable like clay. Mm. And uh, that kind of feeling that uh, everything they used to say, you know, if your head knows and your heart knows, then your hands will know what to do, which is a start, you know, and then he would help very much with the, the sort of discipline you need with with all that to actually um, be in connection with the orchestra in a way that works for players. Um, and of course, this amazing setup they had there. So he must have been, he was the head of the department and there must have been about 10 teachers, maybe 40 students studying conducting there. So they had a professional orchestra there working six mornings a week, um, every week. And it would be three, three full hours 
uh, of time and the teachers would be allocated time depending on how many students they had or you know who was doing final exams and um, even though the orchestra you know were mainly there for the conductors um, and so you know they could be quite jaded you know if you did something that really connected they would respond and mm. they would really you know work and enjoy what you did so um, there was this wonderful very special feeling somehow that what you were doing in the classroom with the two pianos would then build towards trying it out with the players mm. but I think Musin um, yeah he was this very very kind man and when I asked him if I could apply for the Leeds conductors competition um, he wrote a very nice letter to David Lloyd-Jones who of course is fluent in Russian um, you know explaining that I didn't have very much professional experience which is what was required on the entry list but um you know would they consider taking me and so of course you know they did which was great and then Musin used to have me around to his house actually at three o'clock on the afternoons that he wasn't actually teaching at the conservatoire um and I used to conduct with my score balanced on two chairs um <laughs> but largely in in silence or a little bit with recordings because he wasn't familiar with Appalachian Spring um mm. but yeah it was just uh, amazing the amount of care and attention that he would give his students. Um, although interestingly, he also did have a temper sometimes. And I was so in this period, I was um, preparing Sibelius five. And what's very interesting is there's Leningrad as it was probably only, you know, well, it's less than an hour's flight to Helsinki, mm. but because the countries were so closed or the Soviet Union was so closed, they only knew a tiny bit of Sibelius. They knew the first symphony and they knew the violin concerto. So the fifth symphony was completely new to everybody, um, but I'd managed to get the parts over through the diplomatic bag so that I could try it out with the orchestra. And one of the trumpeters had had a rather heavy night the night before and wasn't coming in right, even though I was giving them my best lead. <laughs> And after a couple of times it went wrong, um, Musin getting quite agitated, he suddenly blew up and actually threw a chair at this, <laughs> um, this trumpeter. The chair being one of these old sort of rather brittle things just exploded into a thousand pieces. And then he shouted at this man who slunk off, you know, and uh, yeah, that was awful. And I'm just standing there, you know, feeling incredibly meek. And then um, at the end of the rehearsal, we continued, you know, um, one of the horn players actually came over with a piece of the chair and said, Sean, for a souvenir. And I still have it somewhere. Actually. <laughs> oh, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it amazing how the world changes? You know, that's what um, only 35 years ago. And you, you can't imagine that countries bordering next to each other. I mean, you know, Leningrad as it was, or St. Petersburg now, has a station called the Finland Station, which, you know, the, the train takes four hours to get there around the around the Baltic coast. And um, yeah, you can't believe that the world was like that, but of course it was. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely. And so on the letter of recommendation, you enter the 1984 Leeds International Conducting Competition and win it. What was that like? Gosh, well, actually, it, it, was, a, it was an amazing experience because um, I, I guess I was the, the sort of unknown quantity in all this. Um, I think they started off with 20 people in the first round. And, you know, it's, Moosin had said to me, Sean, do me a favor after all the work we've done together, get past the first round. So I was like, I must get past the first round. Mm. And then, you know, you go on and it's almost like a sort of raffle where you think, will my number come up this time? You know, and getting into the finals was amazing. Um, and being actually allocated the Sibelius Symphony to do um, was a wonderful and very, very special experience. Um, so yeah, the fact that it was totally unexpected and completely uh surprising i guess um meant that you know i i wasn't really ready for any any of it but it was it was a wonderful experience and and perhaps best of all was going back then to leningrad the following week and you know musin was so pleased and i think i hadn't realized until then just how important for the teachers actually in the soviet mm. union uh having successful students actually was um as a sort of flag for 
you know, the success of their teaching. So I was really so thrilled that he'd given me so much. And then, you know, I'd been able to sort of uh, reciprocate, as it were. And then, you know, marvellously, the British Council um, themselves bent over backwards to get me a second year with him, because I realised at that point, you know, having had so rather minimum contact really with, with professional orchestras, um, you know, which is an enormous step up from working with student orchestras, uh, that I really needed that second year. And that was a fantastic uh, time for me to really begin that transition from mm. being a student to being a professional conductor. So a part of the winning package, I'm assuming, was guest conducting engagements. Did you just put them off for a while or did you have to fly back occasionally and do one of those? Well, it's interesting you ask that because actually I think the prize at the time was a concert with the Leeds Youth Orchestra, which was great, and a concert with the Orchestra of Opera North, who'd been the uh, orchestra in the uh, competition anyway, yeah. and a bit of money, and that was it. Oh, wow. But, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that was the first competition. But um, I have to say, absolutely typical of him, Simon Rattle, who hadn't seen me conduct, um, just said, look, this is the winner of the competition. Let's get her in. Mm. Um, and so I had this wonderful opportunity in, again, um, venues which now, sadly, the big orchestras often don't visit. Um, but they, uh, CBSO used to do run-out concerts to Sutton Coldfield and Kidderminster during the week. And so I had a Mozart programme with them um, and prepared it with Moosin and, and then went and did it. And, you know, that, that was an amazing experience. So, you know, I, I came back from Russia to do that and then also had some concerts with them in the summer uh, they had a summer, summer Birmingham prom season and things like that. So, yeah, it, it obliquely led to some wonderful things. And, and that's where it led to having an agent. Um, and uh, actually, that was a funny thing as well. Howard Hartwell had said, OK, you know, it's easy to get you first concerts, but much harder to get you the second ones. <laughs> so we'll give you a go. You know, we'll give you a, I'll give you a few months. Um, here's some concert dates. And I remember him taking me out to supper after a concert, I think it was in Oxford, with his wife, um, Margaret Kitchen, wonderful pianist. And I was very, I realized this was getting towards the end of my year. And so I said to him, um, Mr. Hartog, um, do you think you will be able to take me on then after all this? And he said, oh, I took you on months ago. <laughs> and that was it. And so I've been with Ingpen and Williams and Jonathan Groves, of course, Charles Groves' son, um, mm. who's now, you know, the uh, person running that and now it's Groves Artists but yes it's a fantastic thing so oh, it's nice to have been with somebody that you trust for such a long time and and have a manager yeah. that you know that's a really important thing and maybe something we'll touch on you know when we go come to your teaching and sort of levels of pastoral care that you you have to give as well to your students not just how to beat three and four and what to do with your wrist and all of that um, the next big thing is opera, really, for you, isn't it? Um, first opera with the vile mahogany stand-in. Um, was it yeah. stand-in? I mean, I suppose it was a stand-in, wasn't it? I mean, Simon hadn't started rehearsing, but he suggested you. No, you're right. Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So poor Simon, actually, it was his wife, Ellie, had uh, gallstones, in fact, and had to go and have an operation. And that was when their first son was small yeah. and, you know, he just couldn't... <laughs> come to Glasgow for six weeks during that period so yeah he suggested me and Ollie Nusson mm. and of course the Scottish Opera would love to have had Ollie but he had so little actual time to do it and there was I completely free and so you know Jenny Slack who was the manager then um, and Sarah Playfair was there uh, they just took uh, absolute risk and said okay let's have this person who's you know completely untested um, I'd done little bits of opera, but nothing on this level. And um, so they gave me this wonderful opportunity, which was very, very special, actually. A marvellous production by David Alden of this very unique work. Um, so, yeah, it really set me up. And then from there, I assisted at Glyndebourne and then at the Royal Opera House as well, which was, you know, absolutely, essentially marvellous work for a young conductor of any kind mm. to, to do. Well, another thing I read in that interview was something I'm extremely jealous of. Um, whilst you're assisting at the Royal Opera House, um, meeting a certain Mr. Kleiber. Um, yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I'm, I'm totally <laughs> jealous of that. Um, uh, how was that? It was, of course, fantastically interesting. Mm. Although um, I suppose the situation was actually that it was a revival of Otello. So 
in some ways, what was most impressive was that for months before he arrived, everybody was like, Clive is coming, Clive is coming. So <laughs> everybody knew what there was, what was expected of them, as yes. it were. Um, so in a way, when he then arrived, it was like he just had to switch it on and the machine was all ready to run. Um, but I think, yeah, it was fascinating that, you know, the orchestra talked about how extreme he wanted the dynamics, for example, and this absolutely sort of whiplash clear um, ensemble that he was able to generate and tremendous attention um, to tempo. Mm. And actually, um, very interesting thing, he... He said, oh, you know, some conductors really poo-poo using a metronome, but, you know, I'm really interested in being exact, doing exactly what I'm trying to do and was waving a metronome around in the, the pit, mm. um, which was interesting and, and actually gave me the confidence to realize that for conductors, I think often the uh, situation you're in with a lot of players in front of you with an acoustic you're perhaps not familiar with, um, distances and all the different things that contribute to Tempe being... Uh, di feeling different to what you imagined they would um, means, you know, you can always check if you need to. Mm. It's okay mm. to do that. Um, and so that, that was something. But I think, um, yeah, the, perhaps the main thing from him was this, as a, as a person, um, very, very nice man, um, very nice to me as a young assistant. You know, I'd offer to um, get him sandwiches and things, and he'd never you know, let me give him back the change and things like that. Um, but um, there was always under that a sense that you were with a, a some kind of big cat mm. who could at any second get their claws out. <laughs> and so there was that sort of real frisson all the mm. time in the room, um, which was, yeah, which was interesting. Was that also because people were tiptoeing around him on eggshells, knowing that he'd got previous for just getting up, walking out and never ne never being seen again on, you know, many occasions. Absolutely. And in fact, um, this was absolutely the case um, that I'd been told by the management, any problems, you'll ring the general director, Paul Findlay, immediately. Um, but then actually we did have a slight problem and of course I forgot this completely. It was literally the rehearsal before we were all going to go on a Christmas break and then short rehearsals again after Christmas and then four performances over New Year. And in this last Thursday morning rehearsal, um, the children are brought in immaculately prepared from a local primary school. They have this lovely song they sing to Desdemona. And um, they'd been absolutely drilled and they came in and they sang it perfectly but for some reason Mr. Kleiber decided to conduct them as if he was doing a sort of cat's cradle and they'd of course been told to watch the conductor and going back a little bit to what you said earlier this wasn't going to help at all mm. and so the second time through they were practicing their staging a little bit of course it began to fall to pieces a little bit but nobody dared say to Kleiber will you please give them a beat, Mr. Kleiberg? Just do one, two, and it'll be fine. And I was sitting next to him, and I could see it was getting worse and worse, and he was getting more and more agitated. And then the stage management, the music staff sort of panicked. So um, the stage management brought some extra trees and shrubs on the stage, <laughs> behind which were the music staff, desperately trying to keep things together with these kids. And it was getting worse. And so eventually, I turned to Kleiber, and I said, Mr. Kleiber, look, everybody knew that he loved going shopping yeah. and that um, Harrods was the place. In fact, they used to joke that what they needed was a bell in Harrods to call him back to rehearsals. Um, so I said to Mr. Mr. Kleiber, Look, why don't you go and finish your Christmas shopping? Um, and we'll just sort out everything with the kids because, you know, it's not really a problem. We'll, we'll get it done. And he looked sideways at me. Um, and then he said, that's a jolly good idea. So we all bid goodbye to Mr. Kleiber and off he went shopping. Anyway, at the lunchtime, when we were supposed to all finish, the whole management come down to wish Mr. Kleiber a happy Christmas. Of course, he's not there. And then I realized, oh, my God, I should have been ringing up the management immediately to tell them that, you know, Kleiber had gone shopping because he may never come back. Um, and I, li I literally, you know, imagined that um, I would be sort of um, culpable for this terrible thing. 
But in fact, he did come back after Christmas and it was all fine. <laughs> oh, what a wonderful story. Um, that's staying in, definitely. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> On to English National Opera. When did you first conduct them um, before you became music director in 1993? So I did, I think I did two productions. I did The Gambler, um, Prokofiev, which uh, had um, been directed, I think, by David Pountney and um, was a great piece to do, actually. It's very racy and pacey. Yeah, it was um, very exciting. Um, and then I did... David's production of The Queen of Spades, which he'd chosen to do as a sort of dream sequence. Um, and I'm not sure that that really worked and it didn't really seem to come across to the audience, but um, we did it anyway. And that was already when I'd sort of signed up to be music director there. So that, mm. was, that was slightly unfortunate, but um, yeah. And, and two years there, what was it like running Opera House? Um, I mean, I know it's different. Uh, Jack Van Steen has talked about running an Opera House in Germany. Um, what's it like running one in the UK with funding and all of that? Um, how did you find it? So the problem we had with new um, uh, general director and myself uh, was that the second meeting we had with senior management in August, when we just started, um, it turned out that the company were 3 million in debt oh. with another million arriving. So it was completely on the back foot. And in fact, you know, looking back in a way, you know, publicly funded companies aren't supposed to trade when they're in debt. Mm. And I wonder now whether it would have been better to, at that point, close the company as it was because it was hugely expensive. Um, during Peter Jonas's period there, they'd gone from, I think, 138 staff to 550. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, which is obviously completely unsustainable. And I wonder whether, although it would have been terrible for everybody, um, you know, the company should have closed and then reconfigured, um, you know, rather than continuing a sort of agony that then went on far beyond my tenure mm. uh, because yeah I think when you when you're under that kind of pressure then you know I was of course I'd signed up after saying no twice right because um, I knew that you know it was a huge thing to take on and I knew that Mark Elder had you know spent every waking minute of his life um, dealing with things there um, but you know it was sold to me as a well-run company running well and there was no hint at that time that there was going to be this big problem. And I said, look, you know, I'm really un inexperienced in this. Um, but I was assured that I, you know, the first year that I'd be there, you know, I'd be taken care of, that people would understand that, you know, I was finding my way and so on and so on. Well, instead of that, of course, there was this massive bombshell. And then immediately, and this happens in every organization, um, people look at the salaries of everyone and of course the orchestra which is the largest group has the largest salary base mm. and then immediately people say we're going to cut players and i remember having this meeting with the orchestra um, committee and i had no idea you know how to deal with this politically or behave you know and saying um you know i think we're going to have to lose 12 positions and of course you can imagine how that went down <laughs> yeah, and exactly. after that you know really uh it was incredibly difficult to manage how I, I'm sure, you know, now when I was in my early thirties and I didn't know how to really pull the levers and manage in an opera house. And, you know, I'd say that absolutely honestly, but, um, you know, I'm sure now with hindsight, I would have behaved in a far more politically astute way, but it was just a very, very difficult time for the company and for everybody. And it was difficult for me personally as well. My husband um, had been seriously ill and uh you know we had a son who was um just two and a half i guess when i was starting mm. so you know the whole point of signing up at dno had been that i wouldn't do as much traveling as i had been but then you know as my husband once said you might as well be working in new york all the time sean for the amount of time we see you so there were a lot of tensions um you know to deal with as it were and the company wasn't anything like what i'd been 
led to believe, basically. Mm. And very interestingly for me, actually, because I'd had all this wonderful experience at the Royal Opera House. And at the Royal Opera House, there was a real sense of collegiate working. There was tremendous respect between departments and everybody seemed to be able to make things work between each other in a very respectful way. Oddly enough, the ENO, which was billed as the sort of socialist opera house, as it were, you know, and everybody treated equally, um, wasn't like that at all. In fact, I think the minute a company is under financial pressure, all that nice veneer drops away, you know, mm. and departments were sort of eating each other, trying to get the limited funds or treading on each other's heads to, you know, get the favor of, as it was Peter Jonas then, um, uh, and uh, yeah, so it was a very unfortunate time, I think. And I, as I say, I was in no position really personally to be able to deal with it. So uh, after two years I left, I just thought mm. it's affecting the way I'm making music. I can't conduct with this kind of level of stress. And that actually continued to affect me for a number of years afterwards, I realise now. That must be so tough to to walk into that situation and suddenly it be just totally different from what you were sort of expecting and as you say bringing up a young family and um and and yeah. what people don't realize is that you know sometimes conductors we you know we strive to not bring our personal lives into our work because it, it affects you but sometimes it does it just it, it impacts on you you know so if yeah. you're, you know you're a young mother with a middle husband and then you're dealing with endless board meetings about money and players contracts and all yep. of that it will oh god yeah i can, I can well imagine <laughs> See, it wasn't, yeah. <laughs> wasn't a great combination of putting it Definitely. that way and i i'm you know i'm obviously sorry that i was you know the wrong person at the wrong moment but um obviously after that paul daniel took over and with all his experience from opera north you know did a brilliant job basically in um turning the company around and doing a, a, a lot of wonderful things so mm. i think you know although it's had its ups and downs since which i firmly believe actually are all really based in the fact that the Colosseum perhaps is a very difficult theatre to exist in long term, mm. by which I mean that it's just too big, basically, um, uh, for the kind of work the company needs to do and the kind of voices it can afford or wants to work with and, and, and hire. So um, it's a difficult thing to make it work there. So in 2013, you become the head of conducting at the Royal Academy of Music. And as we've talked about, uh, obviously your experiences with Moosin and, prob and not definitely, I'm sure with Sir Charles Groves and Amy Avery impact what you do. But I'm also interested to know, you know, how holistic, how overall it is in what you do um, with your students. So, you know, over the years, you will have guest conducted all over the world. And the first thing most conductors do when they're young and tiptoe into the profession is guest conducting so uh, I just one it's a it's a long-winded way of, of asking you what's it like being taught by Sean Edwards at the Royal Academy basically <laughs> <laughs> I think um, what I'm very very sharply aware of is how big as I've mentioned before the step up is from being a student to being a professional yeah. or from being a young conductor working with your friends and colleagues to actually exactly what you say, that guest conducting podium slot. Um, it's a huge step. And so what I feel I'm hoping to impart to the students is the technical musical confidence that will build them as conductors so that when they do make that step, they feel not only um, that they can in the way they move and their gestures, they can actually get over what they uh, want in terms of the musical ideas that they have, but also they have confidence in their own musical ideas and the way that those are uh, absolutely at one with their gestures so mm. that there is that um, streamlined, complete person on the, on, on the podium. Because once you can do that and the orchestra can then play together pretty quickly um, with you and feel comfortable and confident that what you're doing is in, uh, harmony, if you like, with what they're doing physically and uh, musically, you can then really hear what's going on with the orchestra and you can also then begin to hear and understand um, what it is you want perhaps to ask the orchestra to do or little things you want them to change. So it is that uh, 
development, if you like, of mm. the young conductor in that way that I think is essential. Mm. Well, I mean, I think uh, it's um, it's such a big subject to teach, isn't it? I mean, I know that I don't get involved at the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire with the the physical things that they do or even the school learning things that they do but I have taken on a role there with the master's course that I talk about rehearsal orders and I talk about programming and I talk about all of the things that don't get covered in other lessons and uh, and as you say that difference between well it's the it's almost a sporting analogy isn't it the difference between playing at the very very highest level as a non-league and then you know playing in the premiership there is such a big difference and and to get that across is 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 tough my next question is very linked with this, and it's to do with score preparation. Uh, you have done a lot of work with Ensemble Modern, which is a contemporary music group, and therefore would have learned an awful lot of brand new scores. When you come to learn a new score, do you have a system? Do you mark things in? And also, is it a system that you teach your students at the academy, or do you just let them find their own way of learning a score and marking it up? So... When I'm working on a new work, I guess I want to understand basically how the piece is constructed and understanding what the tempi are and the quality of sound, maybe the characteristic use of the instruments, all those things that would jump out at you if you're mm. used to looking at scores. Um, but yes, I think I find I very easily get swamped by all the information you've got to take in, unless I can actually, having done that sort of aerial view, uh, broken the score down into smaller chunks that I feel then I can really take in, you know, one session at a time, if you like. Mm. Um, I'm interested sometimes, you know, when I'm teaching, I'm getting out my old scores to look at things. And the, the older they are, the fewer markings they have in, actually. And then the, the more, more recent ones where I've had perhaps less time to actually prepare, mm. uh, quite often have more, you know, markings or, or the um, beat patterns or whatever um, are more sort of clearly marked in. Um, I remember actually at Norman Dunbar's classes um, laughing with uh, Graham Jenkins, um, conductor, who... Uh, was always in the classes with me there and he, because he always managed to buy full scores of everything and I was always turning up with my miniatures <laughs> and he said oh Sean you're going to regret it you know when you're older and the uh, and I couldn't take it seriously of course now I am buying all my scores again in full score format <laughs> because I'm too old to be able to see the damn miniature anymore properly so yeah I, I think uh, yeah this idea of um, understanding the shape of a piece through looking at it and trying to understand what the composer is uh, trying to tell you and narrative or whether it's not a narrative score at all actually but something that's more to do with uh, states or effects or uh, whatever um, and a lot again to do with how you're going to control the tempo where that comes from sometimes an instrument will have the rhythmic characteristic of the, the tempo that you need to, to lock in with and um, all those things, I think, are yeah things that I would certainly um, offer to the students. Mm. Um, I mean, one thing I do find with students quite a lot is that they tend to mark their scores very, very heavily uh, without any prompting from me. Mm. And so quite often I'm doing the opposite and saying, OK, I'd like you to prepare this, you know, fairly central repertoire, whatever it is, movement, without putting any markings in unless there's something, you know, you absolutely can't do without. Um, I want you to come back, you know, next week, having really learned it, but without actually seeing very much on the score. And that's quite a revelation often to students that they then rely and trust more on their own uh, intellectual functions, if you like, to to take in and absorb the score. And then, of course, to be physicalize it, to become, mm. in a way, the music um, as a conductor. There was a line there that made me chuckle because the amount of times I've heard people who say, oh, I look at my scores when I was, you know, the scores I had from 30 years ago, and they're full of markings, and now I write less. And I'm like you. I look at my early scores, and, and there's not much in them. Now I write more and more, you know, bowings in and, and phrases or sentences or all sorts of stuff. And I, I'd be bereft if I lost some, lost some of my scores <laughs> now. But what yeah. it proves is that we all do it differently, and as long as you've learned the score... Uh, and and it works for you, then it works. I think that's that's a paramount thing. I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I do think also that when you're doing brand new music with an ensemble and such as the Ensemble Modern, um, the parameters are slightly different for conductors yes. because 
you're all learning the work in a way together. So although we're there certainly giving the uh, rhythmical uh, tempo structures the sense of the whole, I think um, you're all discovering, you know, how the work actually fits together mm. in a live context. Um, so the uh, weight, if you like, of expression in a way um, is less um, than it would be if you were doing a Mozart symphony or whatever, where you then really need to have thought about how you want to phrase it and, and the bowing and, and so on. Mm. So it, yeah, it's different percentages, but it's still very much the same underlying discipline. Sean, it is 10 questions time. And as ever, I will start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Well, I think the thing that gives me great joy is hearing a small child laughing. <laughs> uh, we've got a couple of kids two doors down here who are in a paddling pool all day. And when I hear them chuckling and laughing and screaming with delight, I have to say that's really one of the great sounds. Um, so maybe I'm a bit like Janacek in terms of, you know, loving the kind of natural sounds that are around me. I've also got a lot of trees here. I'm very, very lucky. Yeah. I'm living on the edge of Lewis in Sussex. And uh, we've had quite windy days where the trees are just fantastic in the way that they sound when the air moves through the leaves. So yeah. that's something else that I absolutely love. Um, but I think, yeah, um, what do I not like? Well, it's the usual uh, screeching of um, brakes or screeching of fingernails on blackboards, I guess, anything like that um, really bothers me. I think, yeah, any anything that um, makes the back of your neck hair stand up is probably something I'd rather avoid. That's absolutely brilliant. I uh, love the giggling kids. We've got it's the same here. We've, as, actually, well, we've got a paddling pool, but my kids are seventeen and twenty. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's one, there's one, two or three doors down, and they're bouncing off the trampoline into their paddling pool. You know, it's um, oh fabulous, yeah, fabulous. If you had twenty four hours free, what would you spend it doing? I think I would just be walking on the downs. Actually, it's um, an area of the south of England that I've known since I was a child. Um, and yeah, they have this continual draw for me. So I think I would love to just do that walking on the South Downs way. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? Oh gosh, who don't, well, actually, interestingly, um, so I, when I'm working on opera, Italian opera particularly, mm. I find I'm often drawn to those early recordings of Tullio Serafin um, to just get back to that tight, dramatic, uh, slightly dry way of working with bel canto um, sound with the orchestra. And equally, actually, um, I like that very much when listening to Janacek and the recordings of uh, Vatsab Talich, for mm, example. Mm. Um, so I guess those two would be my go-to people. Oh, brilliant answers. Neither have appeared in the previous 30-odd episodes, so that's great. Um, and, um, and who would be a favourite current conductor? Well, um, I guess I was just talking with some friends yesterday about uh, Schubert's great C major symphony and hearing Bernard Heitink do that at the proms a couple of years ago with mm. um, the Chamber Orchestra of Europe. Oh, just so wonderful. And it's interesting, um, Bernard, you know, as he gets older, um, does in a way appears to do less and less and yet the music that comes out seems to be more and more beautiful and have greater depth. And it's as if players have this uh, amazing sort of telepathic connection with him. Mm. Um, so I would say that he's still somebody I would greatly admire. Well, he's in a list, a very small list of conductors who were working and alive when I was playing the violin in the CBSO, who I wished I'd played for and I never did. Um, yeah, that's yeah. one of the very few regrets about my playing career that I never got to play for Heiting. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? I think probably the first time I did Yennefer, actually, which was, in fact, in a production um, at the ENO. Mm. Um, and 
was uh, during a period when my husband was ill and in and out of hospital. And um, there's something about that work and also the, the fact that it involves a child. And of course, my child was small at that time. Mm. Um, and actually very similarly, and perhaps even more difficult was the previous year, I did a, a revival of um, Madame Butterfly at the Royal Opera House, which I freely would say I didn't do very well. Um, and this was when my husband had had his first big heart attack and our son had his first birthday literally by his dad's bedside in the Royal oh. Free Hospital. Oh um, and I then, um, my son would go to our lovely childminder um, and I then during the summer sat down to learn Madame Butterfly. And it was odd, very odd, all during the period that my husband was ill. Um, I, I never cried, you know, I was very... Uh, practical about it all and everything organized. And then I tried to learn Madame Butterfly. And I remember just sitting at the desk, weeping, weeping and weeping. And so I never really felt that I learned the piece as well as I needed to. And that was surely the case when I got to do it. So mm. yeah, um, it's interesting how sometimes you can be absolutely sort of uh, floored by something completely unexpected. Although I think Madame Butterfly is a very particular piece and is particularly heart-wrenching. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, I have to say, I like to take my pen knife with me. Mm. Um, and uh, it's because years of uh, hotels yeah. and I get fed up. I'm, I, excuse me for everybody who works in restaurants, but quite often you just want some food in your dress, your, your room or your dressing room without all the faff of having to order it and be nice and everything else. Um, and especially if you're on your own. Um, so yeah, I like to, as soon as I've got to the hotel, I like to go to the supermarket and again, parche all the hotels whose mini bars I've filled up with um, <laughs> food. But uh, yeah, I like to be able to be a bit self-sufficient when I'm on, on the road. Brilliant. Have you ever had the experience a friend of mine once had in Japan um, where the, the CBS were on tour and he bought a whole watermelon and ate half of it in uh, whilst they were staying in Tokyo and kept it in the mini bar fridge. And then they came back to the same hotel a week later and he was in a completely different room, opened up the mini bar and there was the, uh, the, the half of his watermelon that they'd kept and frozen <laughs> for him. <laughs> it's, what a lovely story. That's gorgeous. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I think sometimes it's the loneliness of the podium um, when you can't sort something out. It would be so marvellous if you had somebody sitting in that you know, row of chairs behind you that could just jump up and say, Sean, actually, no, it's not that. It's the, you know, whatever mm. uh, that you need to fix. Um, because I think sometimes when you're right on the podium, um, you know, being able to actually diagnose what's going on is very difficult. And I remember as a young conductor, you know, it was almost sort of a guess sometimes, you know, which bit needed the, you know, what was causing perhaps uh, the thing that wasn't working. And um, so, yeah, having somebody there. Um, so it's not always just you having to have all the answers, I think would be lovely. Well, I think that's a brilliant answer. And secondly, what's interesting is, um, well, and it's worth pointing out that, you know, when you're in the opera house, you regularly, almost always have an assistant in, out in the auditorium. But it's not the assistant's job to point out to you, the main conductor, where the problems are. They're mainly the points, they'll point out problems of balance, but they won't come and help you in exactly the way you just said, because they don't <laughs> feel it's their job, do they? I mean... Quite you know. right, yes. Yeah, it, you're, you're quite right. And um, I think... Um, so, of course, you know, it's marvellous if you get it during the break and you can say, you know, what was it that was, you know, and then they'll probably yes. be able to have heard much more clearly from the auditorium. Mm. Yeah, if you ask them, then they'll give you an answer, but they yeah. won't butt in. Um, That's true. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. Nor should they really. Uh, yeah. Number nine, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Gosh. Well, you know, I'm a country girl, really. Um, so I think had music not had such a strong pull for me, I probably would have moved to the country and had my small holding and done that kind of thing, you know, and perhaps had a far less uh, intellectual as well as, um, you know, musical life. Uh, one of the things that 
conducting really does is um, demands of you and pulls you into all these wonderful worlds that perhaps, um, you know, otherwise you wouldn't necessarily think were interesting, you know, to do with what the composer you're working on, you know, was interested in what made them do something, you know, we have just talking about Tippett, for example, and of course, um, you know, his experience with Jung and having uh, Jungian psychotherapy and uh, analysis and all this. Um, I don't pretend to know a lot about Jung, but it's interesting to come up against that and, you know, be forced to actually read a little bit about that and understand it. So I think, um, you know, it's been an incredibly rich journey, this one, um, which possibly um, tending chickens would have been slightly different. <laughs> the brilliant answer. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Oh, gosh. Well, I must say I do enjoy a glass of red wine. So mm -hmm. that would probably be straight there. And, you know, I'm not a great gourmand, actually. I know quite a lot of my conducting colleagues are <laughs> fabulous at knowing and homing in on exactly the right restaurant every time. Um, but uh, I very much enjoy fresh asparagus so if it was asparagus time if it was may i'd probably go for that um with all the butter and parmesan that you could possibly have well that sounds really nice i like asparagus as well that's wonderful sean really enjoyed our chat today fascinating uh, open honest and really enjoyable thank you very much thank you A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a conductor who started out as an orchestral player, playing in two of the greatest orchestras in the world. He's since gone on to become a music director or principal conductor in Norway, Sweden, the Czech Republic and his native Germany. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>